week, as Seth said, we start Advent season. We prepare our hearts and minds for Christmas. And just as a, a forewarning of all the holidays, Christmas is my favorite. I love Christmas, and so I'm excited about this season. Uh, I want to encourage you um, on your way out, or maybe you grab one on the way in, and to grab an Advent devotional. Uh, these devotions are, are free to you, and I want to encourage you to read one of those uh, or find an app or uh, something that, uh, that you can uh, prepare your hearts and minds for for Christmas. And parents, let me give you a little bit of encouragement to uh, maybe pull your kids away from the toys and from the, the stuff and, and pull the kids away from the phone, pull yourself away from the phone, and just kind of pull yourself together as a family, maybe over breakfast or dinner, and, and talk through Advent and go through this Advent devotion. I think you'll really enjoy it to invest that time uh, with your family. Uh, so we talk about this uh, season being Advent. So Advent, what does Advent really mean? Well, the word Advent itself means uh, the arrival or the appearing or the coming into place. And Advent really has two thoughts or two focuses, two arrivals, uh, two appearings, and two things coming into place. And the first one is uh, we look back on the promises of the Old Testament as Jesus is appearing or arriving uh, for the first time, the first Advent. But there's also a second part of Advent, and that is the, the looking forward that we do now to Jesus coming back. So there's two av uh, avenues of Advent. And so the, the theme or the thought is to embrace Jesus for the first Advent so that we can celebrate with him at the second Advent. And that's what uh, Advent is all about. Now, I'll, not only do I want us to focus on Advent and maybe an Advent devotion, but I also want to challenge you and encourage you to take this Advent story, this Christmas story, uh, to your friends and your neighbors, uh, your, your businesses, your co-workers, um, and to give us a heart with intentionality to share Jesus this Christmas season. Because I believe Christmas, historically, has been our best opportunity to reach non-believers with the message of the real reason for the season, which is Jesus. An article I read this past week or so reminds me of this. It says this, as the general population link, uh, thinks less about the Christian faith, Christmas provides a unique opportunity to reach people who no longer ordinarily attend church. Our culture pauses for Christmas in a way it pauses for little else in the year. TV and films celebrate Christmas in all its expressions. Almost every, everyone decorates their homes, businesses, and cities. On the 24th and 25th of December, the Western world comes as close to stopping and connecting as it ever does. And this is true. So I want to ask you to make and take every opportunity that God puts in front of you to share the truth about Jesus uh, this Christmas season. Invite them to church. Uh, you'll see, uh, you may have gotten one this morning. Invite them to our Christmas party that Steve just mentioned about. Next week we hope to have invite cards that you can hand out for Christmas Eve service. And this is why we do it. We don't want them to necessarily just to come to grace. This is our prayer. This is our hope that during Christmas, great conversations can be had and possibly great conversions can be celebrated. And so we want to share Jesus uh, this season. Today we begin our Advent series called Unto Us. Over the next four weeks, we're going to explore the Christmas story by looking at the book of Isaiah and also a New Testament passage uh, over the next four weeks. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, this experience of experiencing Jesus is not just for a certain few. That's why we titled this series, Unto Us, meaning unto all of us. And so this morning we focus on Jesus and hope. Uh, let me go to the Lord in prayer. 
and ask you to pray with me before we start the message. God, this morning we do thank you for this time of year, for this season, for this advent, for this longing, this expectation, uh, this sense of uh, arriving of Jesus. God, I pray that you stir our hearts with the truth of your word, that you convict us, that you challenge us, that you send us out with a message of hope for people. Just take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or beside you or behind you, that they would hear from the Lord this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want to share a couple of quotes, biblical quotes about hope. This one's from J.I. Packer. He says this, The Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity, hope for pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory, because at the Father's will, Jesus became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later, he might hang on a cross. R.C. Sproul says, Hope is called the anchor of the soul, Hebrews 6.19, because it gives stability to the Christian life. But hope is not simply a wish, a wish that such and such would take place. Rather, it is that which latches on to the certainty of the promises of the future that God has made. Have you ever stopped to think just how much power hope has? Hope has kept people moving forward in dire situations, has kept their hearts and minds alive during great persecution and adversity. Hope is powerful, both in its presence, but also in its absence. When there is no hope, there is despair, which is also really powerful. But hope has lived when everything else has died. Hope has a powerful impact on our soul. And without hope, we live discouraged and we live in despair. And so with this in mind, I want to take a look at a few important aspects of hope. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Normally I read from the New American Standard Version of the Bible. But this morning, I'm going to read from the New Living Translation of the Bible. It says this, Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot, yes, a branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make, their, make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word, and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion, and a little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear, the cub and the calf will lie down together, the lion will eat hay like a cow, the baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra, yes, a little child will put its hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm. 
Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. In that day, to their, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him, and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. Do you hear through Isaiah's words this underlying tone of hope? This morning, the first aspect I want to look at in regards to Isaiah and hope is that there is an assurance, there is a promise of hope. It's interesting in chapter 11 of Isaiah, particularly in verse 1, that Isaiah calls the lineage of David the stem or the stump of David's family. Isaiah uses this tree metaphor, I think, for two reasons. One is that he wanted to see what had happened to the nation of Israel, but more importantly, to focus on what God can do in the person of Jesus. This matchless, unique person of hope. The nation of Israel was looking all around for defense and security. And just like Israel can do, Isaiah points out that that they were tempted to turn to a king or a person or other nations or even themselves. But Isaiah reminds them over and over, depend and look to the Lord. Listen to verse 1 of chapter 11. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot, yes, a branch bearing the fruit from the old root. Isaiah predicts and prophesies that the Davidic dynasty will be completely cut off so that all that remains is this stump of a family tree. Now, I have to stop and ask this question and just get your minds thinking about this. What comes to mind when you think of a stump? I've I've showed you this picture before, but I think it's a a very well uh, reminder of what a stump looks like and what a stump uh, is. A stump. What does a stump remind you of? When you think of a stump, you think of a tree that was cut down, that's no longer alive. A dead tree. A tree that had potential. A tree that that had uh, plans or hopes. But when you see the stump, you think finality. No longer alive. Dead. To me, a stump can be a picture of hopelessness. This morning, as a transition, this morning you have maybe walked in this morning thinking that your situation, your circumstance, some of the relationships that you're in, some of the hopes that you had resemble that of a stump. That it's been cut down. Lifeless. Your dreams, your plans, your aspirations, what you thought was going to happen in your life now feels more like a stump than a live tree. And maybe you even feel this in areas with God, that you thought God was going to do this and that for you and with you. And it didn't happen. And Isaiah says, after the tree of David has been cut down, the only stump left, the shoot or branch, will spring up. So this is what I want us to focus on this morning. God knows the areas of your life that feel like a stump. 
cut off, somewhat hopeless. And I am here to tell you this morning that this is the picture he has for us. That God's hope is promised and assured. And this promise is Jesus himself. So what will Jesus have? Look at these verses. And from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 through 5, the descriptions of Jesus. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. That's our hope. He is our hope. Now you'll note in some of your translations that this word branch or shoot in verse 1 is capitalized because they're referring to the messianic person of Jesus. And that Jesus is the only one qualified to bring us hope. Verse 2 says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Colossians 1.19 says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. How much? All the fullness of God to dwell in him. Isaiah goes on to clarify further and describe the Spirit's role. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel. He will delight in the obedience to the Father. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus' desire was the purpose was to please his Father. Not only that, is Jesus is the only one worthy to judge. It says that he will decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. What does that mean for us? So our hope does not have to depend on what you think of me. Or how you think I need to respond. Or how you think I need to act or live. My hope is built on who Jesus desires me to be. These are the qualities of the matchless Messiah. And he, he continues to describe him in verse 6 through 9. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling together. Now, let me just make sure you understand this. The lion and the lamb together is not normal. Like, we've all seen those National Geographic videos where you see this lion, this poor little gazelle or zebra. That's not normal. So this is a miraculous work of God. And that's where we find our hope. Isaiah is telling us that Jesus will do a unique, miraculous, and matchless work. He says that we will live in peace with one another. Which has this underlying message of forgiveness and openness and grace. Isn't that what the world is longing for? In the midst of our vast diversity? Isaiah in his prophecy makes it clear that even in the midst of what appears to be cut off, what looks like may invite more fear and more worry, he says, don't worry. I have a shoot. I have a branch. And his name is Jesus. But as we know, there's always a threat to God's hope. And we see this in Matthew chapter 2. The story is found in Matthew 2 and 
the, the title of this point is An Attempted Murder. Bum, bum, bum. Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Herod is the bad guy of the Christmas story. In fact, Herod's the bad guy of all his stories. There's nothing good to say about Herod. In this one account of Matthew chapter 2, Herod lied to the Magi, he killed baby boys of Bethlehem, and he tries to kill Jesus. Pretty bad dude. He killed out of spite, he killed to stay in power, Human life meant nothing to him, and he was a clever and cruel man. Josephus, the historian, calls Herod barbaric. And like all tyrants, he held tightly to the reins of his power, and he eliminated any threat to his power. In fact, it's been said that killing was what Herod did best. And as the Christmas story goes... In the Bible, one day word comes to Herod while he's in Jerusalem that there's some wise men, some magi that have arrived from the east and they are strange men with a strange question. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? It wasn't so much that Herod was concerned about who they were, but what they were asking. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. These wise men, magi, were looking for someone who was born king of the Jews. Who was born king of the Jews. At this current time, who is the king of the Jews? Herod. Herod, in his mind, was the king of the Jews, but he was not born that way. Remember, he killed and cleared his own path to get there. And so the wise men are asking a question, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And verse 3 says, when he heard this question that he was troubled in his spirit, which is an understatement because this word troubled really means that he began shaking violently. He was bothered. And no wonder. Finally, at his old age, he had made his way to the top. He had made his way to be king and had all this palaces and ports and everything was unto him. All his hope rested on him. And now these strangers come with their strange question and it threatens his hopes of himself. So what does Herod do? Well, he calls together the scribes and the chief priests, and he says, what's going on with this prophecy and these wise men? And listen to verses 4 and 5. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where's the Messiah to be born? And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. Herod is starting to realize that things are getting serious, and maybe these strangers are on to something. What if this baby that they're looking for really is, really is the Messiah that God promised? 
If he really is, then he's going to threaten my throne. Herod may be many things, but he's not stupid. He realized pretty quickly that he's got to get rid of this threat. He must kill the baby, and he must do it as quick as possible. So here's what happens in verses 7 and 8. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out the exact time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go worship him. There is no way Herod was going to go worship this baby. He had no intentions. You know the rest of the story. The star appears over where Jesus is. The wise men come and find Jesus. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh were given. And just, off, just before the Magi step off the scene, verse 12 says this, Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, the wise men returned to their own country by another route. Scripture says the wise men went east, and Mary and Joseph went west. And Herod's back at the palace, uh, thinking, now I know I'm going to get him. Scripture says that Herod was thinking the Magi would lead him straight to Jesus, and then he could have Jesus killed and destroy the hope of the people and keep his hope alive in himself. Verse 16 says this, But when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were born in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under. Herod wanted to kill, murder, any threat to his throne. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he thinks... If all the babies are dead under two years old, that'll have to include Jesus. So he could rest if he could just kill his last foe. If he could just destroy hope in Jesus. Herod died, but his spirit lives on. And by that I mean this. To this very day, there are those who see Jesus as a threat to their throne. That they're offended by Jesus because they're afraid of what Jesus may take from them and their kingdom. Maybe so much not in a radical way, but they relate to the thinking nonetheless. They believe, like Herod, that they have built for themselves this great empire. This is my life. I get to do what I want. A kingdom under themselves. And to hear any kind of threat of that or giving someone else control or placing someone else king in their empire causes fear, uncertainty, and a strong sense of self-protection. As one commentator said, and I'll paraphrase, Jesus is a threat to our self-made kingdoms. To surrender to him means a surrender of what we have created for ourselves. It hands to Jesus our power, status, identity, and hope. So the story of Herod shows us that hope in ourself must be destroyed and transferred to Jesus. And Herod wanted to do the opposite. 
And this is the fundamental meaning of sin and pride. Building a kingdom unto myself and trying to get rid of Jesus. So the question is this. Does the presence of Jesus threaten you or give you hope? Herod tried to kill Jesus, but the truth is, Jesus is alive. Leads us to our final point. Hope is alive. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is, a, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This morning I want to ask you a question that maybe you need time to answer. What is hope? When you get down to it, how do you answer the question, what is hope, and what am I hoping in, or who am I hoping in? Hope has, as we typically think about it, is a desire for some future thing which are, we are uncertain of attaining. It almost plays in our culture with this idea of, well, I wish it would. But biblical hope and New Testament hope is totally different from that kind of hope. We can define hope in the New Testament as full assurance or strong confidence that God is going to do good for us in the future. But Peter calls it something even more specific. He calls it living hope. Now, what does that mean? Living hope. Well, let's think about it in opposite terms. What is dead hope? It reminds me of what James says, that faith without works is dead. So that means that faith without works, is powerless, fruitless, and unproductive. And so it is with hope, a dead hope. But Peter says that we have a hope that is living by the power of the resurrection. His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, just sometimes my brain gets on rabbit trails during my week of study. And sometimes I chase the rabbit in all kinds of different holes. <laughs> this past week was no different. I was chasing this rabbit, but I did come back to the main point of the message. But the rabbit chase was fun, and this is what I found. And I wanted to ask you this question. What is it that makes you, you? What would you say? What is it that makes you, you. One author asked it this way, what is the taproot from which the flower of your individuality grows? 
What makes you, you? I think if we probe deeply enough, we will find that it is not our actions. It's not what we do. It's not even our thoughts. I'm convinced what makes me, me, are my own desires. We are basically, one author said, what we crave. Or, another way to put it, what we place our hope in. And the reason, watch this, the reason Peter says that we are born anew to a living hope is because when we cease to pin our hopes, our longings, our desires on us or things in this world and instead pin our hopes on the desires of God, then a new person has been born. And because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, believers can be born again to a living hope, giving us new desires, new longings, which now define us. One author said this, Time destroys most hopes. They fade and then they die. But the passing of time only makes Christians' hope that much more hopeful and glorious. Can you relate to that? That as we continue to live in this world and the pressures and trials and circumstances, deep inside of us we long even more and more for that glorious day of Jesus' return. Peter called this hope an inheritance. As children of the king, we share in the inheritance of glory. One commentator said this, We are included in Christ's last will and testament. And notice the description Peter makes of this inheritance. Verse 4 says it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it will not fade away, and it's reserved or promised for those of us who have surrendered our hopes to Jesus. That's what awaits us. It will never grow old. Because it's eternal. First Peter 1, 5, and 9 called this inheritance salvation. Steve mentioned it earlier when we were praying. This week I'll participate in three different funerals. And thankfully, all of the people for these services that have passed away were believers and are experiencing the presence of Jesus. Their hope in Jesus on earth was a living hope, and now their hope in heaven is a visual hope. And their hope will never disappoint, never wear out, never grow old. Nothing can take it away. Without their hope in Jesus in this life, their hopes would have died with them. But when we are born again, we exchange the passing of hope of man for the eternal and glory of God. But until that day, we remain here. And Peter gives us perspective and balance between trials and hope. Hope in trials. Six verses, six perspectives. It's been said the only way we can really understand hope 
is because we understand our trials, meaning that there is a longing for something different, that we lament, that we grieve, that we many times have pain and a sense of loss because this is not how it was supposed to be. And if you ever want to read through the Psalms, you can hear David scream those words too. And so we lament of what, not what is, but what we wanted it to be or what God wanted it to be. So Peter, Peter speaks to this dilemma, this turmoil in the midst of trials. And he gives us God's perspective. And the first thing he says is that the trial meets the needs, our needs and the need of God. He says in verse 6, If necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Meaning that if it's necessary to go through trials. Sometimes it's necessary to discipline us. To get us back on track with the Lord. Another thing about trials. Trials are various. This word various means multicolored. Some of you have had one of those blue Mondays, right? Or gray Tuesdays. Or maybe you just feel like you're living your life sort of in a gray area. Trials come in various colors. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you in all trials. Stating the obvious, trials are not easy. They produce heaviness. They experience, they produce pain and grief. They're hard. They're confusing, they're frustrating, and they're unwanted. They're called trials for a reason. But God has a reason for them. God, trials are controlled by God. One author said, trials are there for a reason and for a season. I like what one author said, though, when describing this. Get this picture. When God permits his children to go through the furnace, he keeps an eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. Meaning that he's not going to let us go through a trial one minute longer than he deems necessary. Remember, it was Jesus from the cross who said, it is finished. And God said, it is time. All through our trials, Peter says, we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day, in the last time. In a minute, we're going to sing a song called Glorious Day. There will be a day when Jesus returns and sets everything straight. Sets everything how it was supposed to be from the beginning. Jesus promises hope even when hope seems to be cut off. So we long for hope. It's been said, it's not what you know, it's what you do with what you know that really counts. So it begs the question, how do we live in light of the hope of Jesus? If you think about something, you put yourself in first century A.D. and you think about what Herod's kingdom looked like. You think about what Jesus' kingdom at the time looked like, a baby in a manger most people would have put their money on Herod's kingdom. But Herod's kingdom isn't alive forevermore. That's why we're singing about Jesus instead of Herod 2,000 years later. And that's what Advent does for us. It reminds us that our kingdoms that we build into ourselves will not last. It's the kingdom of God. 
It stirs our spirit, encourages our faith, because no matter what is happening in us or around us or in our culture, we can look back and see and we can look forward and see and we can confidently say, my money's going to be on Jesus. He's my only hope. I talked to a lot of people first service. I'll talk to people again at this service. I'll talk to people this week. And so will you. Where the situations and circumstances of life are weighing them down. And they need a word of reminding them about the hope of Jesus. Because hope lost Doubt creeps in. We start doubting God's goodness, God's presence, God's awareness. And God wants to remind us this morning, unto us, hope. Hope is not a feeling, but a person. Hope is a continual encounter with the resurrected Jesus, the hope of glory. An encounter that makes all the difference, both now and forever. And so the question this morning, in whatever place you are, Will you and I place our trust and hope in the living Jesus this morning? As you leave this morning, think about this picture. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth, the prophetic voice of Isaiah, the promise of the Messiah, the perfect one to fulfill our hope. God, I pray this morning for those here this morning who have situations and circumstances that are so heavy on them from the past or the present or things they're looking for in the future and there's just over-sense, uh, overwhelming sense of a cloud of doubt or hurt or pain or grieving. God, I pray that you would instill in them a reminder that you've never left them, that you won't leave them, that you are their hope. And God, I thank you that we cannot in any way thank you enough for the hope of your return. And we trust you with that. In Jesus' name, amen.